0: constantly move forward. There's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg.
1: Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag BigBeacon. And our first segment of Big Beacon Radio is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with a passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And actually today we're Uh, Grateful and blessed to be joined by an Olin faculty member, uh, Zhenya zas Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Dave. Good
1: to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you and and been looking through. uh, I've known of your work for some time, but this is the first time we've talked and was looking through some of your uh, recent papers, and we'll get to that in a minute. But, uh, Zhenya, you're an associate prof of physics at Olin. You're a physicist, uh, a scholar of engineering education and gender studies in education. But let's go back in the time machine a bit. Uh, What were some of the early influences that put you on your current path?
2: That's a terrific question. Um, So I'm going to have to say that um, my answer to this will be a little bit more kind of stereotypical. My first and most important influence has been my father. Sure. Who, um, I actually come from the family of engineers that go back three generations on both my mother's side and my father's side. And both men and women in my family were engineers. But my father, by far, was the most influential person because he truly believed in me. Um, cognitively, emotionally, effectively, he was not only my cheerleader and supporter, but he was also my teacher. Um, so who, he was an engineer who also taught physics in high school um, for some time. And he gave me the first kind of steps into the world of science, answering you know, typical questions about why the sky is blue and why the light bulb is round, um, but also instilling in me trust that I can do this, trust that um, regardless of how science world looks like, regardless of whether it's um, male-dominated or not, um, if I love it, I can do it. And so by far, he was the most influential person. But after that, I had a number of instructors and mentors who trusted in me and supported me. And I would like to use this term care. They
3: cared mm. for me.
2: And I can rattle yeah. off a number of names of scientists, mathematicians, physicists, you know, and yep. art historians who truly cared for me and believed in me, who put me on this path. Um, so I can go into any detail, but let me. Um, let me just share one story about the art sure. historian from Yale University. Her name is Judith Collins, and I truly hope that if she listens to it, uh, to this um, interview, she, she knows how much she influenced me. Um, I spoke hardly any English when I took her course at Yale University. Um, literally, I took this class to learn some English. Um, but I also liked art history. I, wasn't, I, I didn't know what I was stepping into. Mm. And she stepped with me through each paper. She taught me English language. Um, She taught me how to write properly. And she taught me how to think creatively in English, um,
3: Mm. which
2: was a third language for me. Um, And years later, I received... My final paper for that class was um, to discuss one of the churches in Moscow and how um, that church was built based on Baroque art and architecture style So years later, I got a letter from her saying that she took my paper to Moscow to look at that Ah. particular church and to tell me how much I influenced her. So when I think about the ways in which we as instructors, we as mentors, as advisors, teach our students and influence our students, I always think about the the fact that this is a two-way street, this is a two-way interaction. We teach our students just as much as we teach them. And if we Mm. learn to appreciate that, and to truly um, kind of integrate it into our practice, then we truly become instructors um, and mentors and coaches. um, Yeah,
1: that's that's so interesting. uh, Both uh, lovely uh, threads of your your story. And and actually, whether something's a cliche or stereotypical or not sort of depends, right? Right. And uh, we, uh, everyone says teaching is a two-way street, or many people say it, um, but only some mean it, and only some offer enough care to to show that they really mean it. Absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And actually, I was I was sitting reflecting about your your story about your dad. I'm I came by engineering the old-fashioned way through my listening to my dad regale me with stories of stress analysis at the the dinner table as well, and um, um, but it it seems that you know there's a difference between us. Your 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 dad influenced you in a very in a different cultural setting. And engineering in Ukraine and the former USSR is it, different than this country. the the feeling The feeling about engineering and the status of engineering is different. Comment?
2: Um, yes, absolutely. Um, so. I grew up in the former USSR Um, the culture there was that engineering as a field was ghettoized um, Mm. by mostly male um, engineers and Jews Um, interestingly enough um, this was a field where Jews kind of tended to go into and and engineering was predominantly that field this was also a way Mm. to discriminate Um, as you may know um, anti-Semitism was pretty high uh, in the former uh, Soviet Union. And so yes. this was a way to kind of separate that part of the society from, um, from the rest of the society. And so listening to my dad, actually listening to all of the family members, but particularly to my dad, about the beauty of science and beauty of engineering and hmm. the aesthetics um, of problem-solving, right? And also... Kind of saying, I trust that you will do well, regardless of whether you're going to go into engineering or science or whatever else you do. Just believe in yourself and trust that you can do whatever you want. That kind of balance is what allowed me to make my first steps into science and believe in myself. Um, Yeah. And, and actually, I decided to go into science rather than engineering precisely yep. because of this paradigm of kind of not wanting to be ghettoized into engineering. Um, that's a little bit of paradox that I had to live with
1: yeah so and also on the show, and maybe we've already heard it because some of your your stories were stories of uh, of unleashing, but you know Mark Somerville and I wrote about um the common thread between Olin and the Illinois Eye Foundry experience as being this unleashing of where people um, have the courage to do something that they wouldn't otherwise have done. And and that can involve particular people, and you've called out people, or it can involve sometimes particular experiences where you dare to do something that you might not otherwise have done. And so I'm I'm wondering, um, beyond what you've already said, to what extent have you had experiences or other individuals in your life who helped give you the courage to go your own way?
2: Oh, that's a terrific question, Dave. Um, let, me, let me just say that I'm passionate, truly passionate to be doing things that I'm doing both because of people who supported me and because yeah. of people who, aren't um, they, supported me. Yeah. And much of my, what I'm doing today in the classroom and in my research is kind of driven by negative experiences that I've had in my life. So, you know, in the former Soviet Union, I experienced anti-Semitism. When I came to the States, um, in the kind of scientific realm, I experienced chauvinism. Um, And um, I was told face-to-face that my thesis is trash and I should go home and wash dishes. Um, by my co-advisor, I was told that I don't belong. I was told that I should smile less because when I smile, I don't present scientific enough or serious enough.
1: Not serious enough, yeah.
2: And so, and I was anti-supported in that I was given messages both explicit and implicit that somehow, for whatever reason, I don't belong. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough, I'm not persistent enough, um, I'm not resilient enough. And I am, right? I've I've gotten where I've gotten because of resilience, because of determination, and also because of great will now to do everything that was done, to do everything opposite of what was done to me. So what I'm doing currently in the classroom is supporting students, particularly women students, in all the ways that I feel are right to support them so yeah. that nothing like what happened to me is going to happen to somebody else. Um, mm. And still teaching them lessons that I learned back then. And still kind of saying, these environments, these conditions, these cultures still exist. You may be at Olin in the Olin bubble where you have 50-50 um, men-to-women ratio in students' body. Yeah. But out there in the real world, you may be the only woman, you may be the only African-American, you may be the only gay person. And you need to learn how to stand on your own and how to have high self-efficacy and high self-respect and believe in yourself to do what you feel is right. And so I truly believe that this is my role. Beyond teaching physics and science, you know, and uh, uh, engineering design, I feel like my role in the classroom is that of supporting and caring and mentoring and creating conditions where students start believing in themselves, believing in their own voice. For some students, discovering their own voice. And for others, it's developing their voice to tell the truth, to share their belief and value systems, and then find the ways in which they change the society where they belong, right? Where they feel
1: yeah. Now, and it's interesting, and it, when I, I try to ask a version of this question of all of our guests, and it's interesting the number of times that the, uh, the unleashing can be a positive one. And actually, your earlier stories um, about your dad and your um, art history professor were positive stories of um, mentorship and coaching and trust and and but it's interesting how often the negative the negative story and of course you know as humans we have this negative bias in some ways the negative stories are more powerful for us and and uh, and we want to fight and, uh, we, and we feel the lack of justice in what was done and we want to um, we want to combat it and it it is interesting though, because I, I, when I took training as a coach, I was sort of naturally a fighter, mm-hmm. and but now I'm a little suspicious of the fighting. And and uh, actually, there's a the polarity. So there's this fighting and injustice, and then this care that you talked about. And and um, yeah, I wonder. So that seems like a. It's sometimes that's a hard balance. I, I was talking with my own coach the other day, and I said, you know, I'm going to give my. It was someone who had. Done something that was energized me to do something I needed to do, and I said, "I'm going to give myself permission to fight." But I'm, I'm, um, I'm a little suspicious of fighting because sometimes that um, that chip on the shoulder isn't what you want to convey to the people that you're working with. Comment. Um,
2: that's that's a very interesting point. I I do often find myself in this kind of fighting mode. Um, yeah. But I always go back to the imagery of um, Mother Tigress or Mother Panther, P- yep, yep. something like that, where care is just part of who you are. It's just yep. part of a being. It's being. And then there is doing, right? So you can be caring and loving and supportive and cheerleading. You can be that nurturer, that nurse, um, who's always there to kind of pick you up and hold you, um, while also having um, an, an agility and kind of desire to do the right thing, and I, and I do believe there is this nice balance between the two. Yeah. And when I want to balance, I kind of go back to that image of mother tigress or mother panther who protects its children. Um, in which case, you know, they, those may be my colleagues or my my students, um, and kind of holding both at the same time. with that imagery helps me personally. Um, but I do believe this is a larger conversation that we need to have, maybe in engineering education.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, and the, the whole thing is so, the whole enterprise of engineering education transformation is so rife with these polarities, these opposites between being directive and being participative and um, um, being, uh, or from the student perspective, being courageous versus being obedient. It, it's just, And then, so how do you get the good stuff, uh, structure versus lack of structure? I mean, it's just, the whole thing is so full of it. And we're not going from, an old paradigm to the opposite. We're going from a balance of the two in the old paradigm that leaned one way to a different balance almost always. But we oftentimes think of the, the pole that we're not doing like if we're thinking, well, so if we were kind of uncaring and, you know, um, you know, straighten up and fly right kind of engineering education versus a more caring kind of education. Well no, we're not going to we're not coddling people. Sometimes people read the whole new engineer and said Mark and I were advocating a fluffy kind of engineer engineering where bridges wouldn't be built, but we're we were really talking about a kind of engineering education that was on on the Princeton list of hardest like Olin is, and the Princeton list of most fun like Olin is. We're talking about a different balance of the polarities. Always
2: absolutely absolutely yeah. absolutely it's this delicate balance delicate dance that we need to learn how to do we don't know we're just still kind of toddlers learning how to do this kind of dance
1: yeah i love the image of the toddl- the, the toddlers i see all my colleague engineering colleagues in diapers so right. uh, so <laughs> so let's go back to the early days so and yeah we've had a great segment here and i um just to give you a chance, to, so you've been at Olin since the uh, early days. I think you were in, uh, you and Mark probably came on at about the same time or uh, contemporaneously. Uh, why did you choose Olin, and what's that ride been like for 16 years or 15, 16 years, whatever it's been?
2: Fifteen years. So I actually came to Olin in 2002 with the first class, with the first um, kind of regular class of students. Um, Mark came the year before in t- 2001 with yeah. partner year students. students. Yeah. Um, I came to Olin honestly because I wanted to be in an environment where I could be me, where I could mm-hmm. create. Um, before before Olin, I was at Bosley College um, um, in their physics department, and um, I had multiple conversations with my colleagues there where the message was very clear. If you want to get a tenure position here, if you want to get tenured here, you need to focus on physics. Everything else is, um, should not be even considered until yeah. after you're fully tenured. Yeah. And even though I love physics and I want to focus on physics, I'm not just physics. I'm so much more. And all in, I felt as though was going to give me an opportunity to hold my physics interests and passions yeah. while also um, unleashing, that's the word you, you He was unleashing my other passions and kind of allowing me, giving me permission to also own other spaces um, in which I'm interested in. Um, I was was thrilled to learn. So that was a piece of it. And the other piece of it was that I was curious about project-based learning. Um, Mm -hmm. As I said before, I come from three generations of engineers from the former Soviet Union who were educated in a traditional kind of way, and clearly that system worked for them, right? So clearly they achieved wonderful things as Jews to become a scientist or become an engineer to get a PhD, Um, wasn't heard of um, in in some parts of the Soviet Union. Um, So that system worked for them. So what was this all about, about project-based learning? Um, Not much was in literature in 2002. And particularly, I was curious about this whole rhetoric about effectiveness of project-based learning um, environments for all students, particularly for women. And when I did literature search on this rhetoric, I found close to nothing at the time. And so part of me was curious to find out, to practice project-based learning, but also to study it also to understand it, be within an environment, and do the active research to understand how it truly works and whether indeed the rhetoric is correct. Does it work well for women students? How so? Why Why yes or why no? So it was this two-part kind of thing that attracted me to Olin. And, you know, I'm still at Olin um, 2017, and I'm enjoying every interaction with my colleagues and my students talking about, the effectiveness of non-traditional paradigms um, for all students. And equity, diversity is one of the biggest um, variables in any of the research projects that I undertake. So whenever I ask a research question, um, you know, some sort of inclusion or some sort of diversity question um, is a part of it, uh, always.
1: Well, let's take a break. I, I want to come back and, and dig into some of um, some of the things that you're researching. Your scope is quite broad, and, and we've only got uh, one show. But I, I, maybe in the next segment, come back and talk a little bit about internalization versus externalization, the question of locus of control. How about that? Sounds great. Sounds great. This is Big Beacon Radio with our uh, special guest, Enya zaps care, and stay with us in the next uh, segment. We're going to talk a little bit about locus of control and, and its importance in education.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Again, that's one 472 5790 or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org Now, back to this week's show.
1: And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. The second segment is sponsored by Three Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership but consultation and strategic planning to help transform your organization and or educational institution. And you can ask uh, our guests uh, questions or make comments at on Twitter at hashtag big Big Beekman. and also um, get the book that is um, transforming higher education: a whole new engineer, the coming revolution in in engineering education, at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And we're back with uh, Zhenya Zastavkar from um, Olin College, and and Zenia, we were. Um, we we're talking a little bit about your your journey uh, from the Ukraine to uh, physics and to the united states and and uh, all kinds of good things and and your journey to olin and and uh, some of your research is in educational issues. And one thing that struck me as as really important and a, and uh a, an important distinction to make in terms of the kind of shifting balance that we're trying to to get in education these days is, This whole question of uh, notions of locus of control, I I think that term goes back to at least as early as Julian Rotter and the psychological realm and the the sociologist uh, David Reisman made similar kinds of distinctions uh, sociologically, Um, but um, it seems to me that this distinction is really important these days in motivation theory. How would you you characterize modern notions of internalization and externalization for people in our audience who haven't heard those terms before.
2: Um, right. Let me do a little Aikido move here, Dave. <laughs> Let me actually share a little bit of a story of why I got into motivation research that brought me to this question of understanding or uncovering, unpacking um, externalization, internalization, and local mm-hmm. control. So, um, so I started doing um, engineering education research back in 2004, and uh, my major research question that at the time was effectiveness of project-based learning for all students, particularly for women. Yeah. And what I found over three, four, five years of working on that project was that all roads led to motivation, regardless yep. of which question I was asking during interviews or yep. in surveys of my participants most of them were talking about motivation. And um, so starting in about 2011, I started working with one of my colleagues at Olin, John Stolk, who was at the time very much preoccupied with this question of motivation, particularly situational motivation, that is motivation in a moment, in a situation, um, for students in um, um, science and uh, engineering environments. So... um, I started working with John um, in 2011, and what we wanted to do at the time was we wanted to kind of unpack what minute details, what minute things happen in classroom environments that either kind of open up opportunities for students, um, that either develop student motivations, shift students' motivation towards intrinsic end of the spectrum, or not. And so we, didn't, we weren't particularly interested in contextual motivation at the time because that is what much of the literature is published on. We wanted to know on the ground at a moment what can we do as faculty, as mentors, as coaches that shift students' motivation one way or another. And all of this was based on the premise that there is no such thing as an unmotivated student. There are environments that are unmotivating, but there are no unmotivated students. So that was, that's where we started. And um, as a qualitative researcher on the project, my go-to technique to study things is to ask lots of questions, qualitative questions of participants, and to use a method that is called grounded theory, which is a method that allows us to dig into the data to see what our participants say and to see whether there are any emergent patterns. So regardless of attribution theory of motivation that is out there or self-determination theory that is out there or goal-orientation theory that is out there, we just want to kind of say, suspend all of our hypotheses and kind of say, what is emergent? What comes out? What do students say to a typical question of what stands out for you in last week's classroom, right? So that's where we started. And we devised a set of five questions on a survey where we let students to kind of comment about what activities stand out for them or what what they were most interested in doing or what they were motivated in or where they found most use in an activity. And so what was emergent from them, what came out from the student responses was the way in which they talk about assessment in relationship to their motivations and in relationship to their emotions Mm -hmm. um, associated with assessment. And this is where students all of a sudden, I guess not all of a sudden, but, you know, after doing analysis, we understand this better, where students started talking about how problem sets. Matter of fact, they are feeling like they are out of control, like there is nothing they can do. They're either going to be doing well on the problem set or not, and it's not... In their control, versus project environment, where there was a lot of a lot more of a sense of doing better, or even if they didn't do better, even if they do did poorly on an assessment on a project, they felt like they could own that, and they could self-assess themselves. And so we started.
1: Um, so that so I'm hearing uh, so on problem sets that's like uh, Martin Seligman's famous experiments with with dogs. Essentially, we we train them to feel helpless right. or out of control in much the same way that uh, that he did with 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 dogs in his uh, work on learned helplessness.
2: That's that's absolutely correct. So the interesting piece here is that again we're not putting any kind of value on yeah. either what we call internalization once. Yeah. He's Kind of own their, their, um, their grade on assessment and their affect, yeah. affect, emotion on assessment um, versus externalization where they do either crediting or blaming of somebody else. But we're just trying to kind of understand what it is that happens in the in, um, educational environments yeah. that leads students to do either internalization yeah. or externalization. And that's what you refer to as locus of control. Where do students say, I know this is my fault, I know I didn't study enough, or I know the environment didn't let me do things, or, you know, the situation was just such that I know I need to learn a little bit more and experience a little bit more to do a little bit better. When do, what is the environments where students own that versus where uh, students say, you know, it's my teacher's fault, it's the snowstorm's fault, it's... Everything
1: well, saying there. it uh, saying it somewhat differently, the you know the the, the forty or fifty percent of the students who get through the current system, that is pro- the traditional way. probably you know, uh, I used to call it uh, the Woody Hayes method of engineering education. Woody Hayes was a football coach at Ohio State, and he always ran three. He ran the ground game. He ran three yard plays. So it's like so three yards in a, cl- cl- a cloud of dust what well, was you know three problems in a cloud of dust is the approach in engineering education so students who succeed in that are those who have some sort of more of a sense of mastery in that environment and that's a small number of students right
2: yeah right. and we want to understand what is that what is the sauce what yeah. is the magic sauce right and it seems yeah. to us at least as of today that problem sets um Shift students a little bit more towards the um, externalization um, paradigm, whereas project-based learning environment, which allows students for more sense of autonomy, for more sense of relatedness um, to their context, um, for more sense of mastery, those students tend to internalize more um, both in terms of crediting themselves and others and in terms of pl- blaming themselves and others. So it's, it's that kind of paradigm. Um, and, you know, this is pro- um, work in progress. So we sure. don't quite fully understand yet all of the details. There are nuances of the project-based learning environment which allow students this kind of sense of saying, you know, I'm here to be blamed. The team was excellent, but I'm here to, to be blamed. I did or did not do something, right? And how do we also kind of support students in them owning that and saying, you've just learned a ton just by simply acknowledging this? Um, It's on us as instructors to kind of say and support them in that process and also celebrate that, celebrate that sense of, you know, self-blame, if you will, positive self-blame.
1: Well, and a blame in the sense of of um a, a failure or some something that went wrong that leads to learning or understanding or leads to oh okay yeah don't need to do that and don't need to do that again that um but that there's a sense too in in some of the environments that things go right or wrong and you just can't even really ferret out well even when things go wrong you go oh, i don't i thought i did it right but i don't know why it went wrong and that's that's not a very helpful environment for for learning so um yeah so so you've you've you know you've uh, a recent paper you wrote about the emergence of these things in a in a recent paper, and you said and I understand this is a work in progress, but what are some of the salient things that um you believe are coming out of the work in terms of uh, the conditions that lead to um this internalization versus uh, an externalization of, of things?
2: Um, so I think you alluded to it, although you didn't use this word, Dave. Um, okay. It's reflection. Yeah. yeah. So it's deep reflective practice. Yeah. I would say not just reflective practice, but critical reflective practice that allows yeah. students to look out and look in and make connection and bridging. Yeah. Um, from personal to professional and back, and connect with the failures, and I mean failures in the best possible way, failures as a way of learning, and leverage them to understand their current kind of positioning and move forward, plan forward, so that those mistakes are then used as lessons in the future steps. And I truly believe that in the process of critical reflective process, that we are able to kind of do that. Now, we need to create environments for students to do that. We need to celebrate environments where students do critical and engage in critical reflective processes um, and then come out on the other end and say, I'm blaming myself, but in the most positive sense of the word, because now I know what to do and what not to do. Um, so I believe that if we learn as instructors how to do this in a supportive, caring way, and how to scaffold environments where students can do that safely. And then we are um, we are on our road to kind of um, to um, internalization, if you will. Yeah, yeah So
1: I can hear yeah. So I can hear some of those uh, faculty members out there saying, "Yeah, okay, I buy that." So now, how, what practices can I adopt? Yeah. You know, so uh, faculty well, sometimes faculty are theoretical and sometimes they're practical, but when they're in a practical frame of mind and they, they agree with what you just said, what can they do in terms of their own practices uh, in and outside the classroom to, to help um, create the space for this reflect, this uh, deep critical reflection?
2: Oh, such a good question. Well, first of all, acknowledge that we as faculty are not prepared to teach critical reflection.
1: I love that buckle. I I love that you just said that. I love <laughs> that you just said that. You know, so it's like you know, so you go and work with people on this stuff, and it's like, well, yeah, I, I, I've been there, done that. That's sort of like anybody can do that, but almost none of us can do that, right? Right. <laughs> it's, it's we we're where in our background did we learn how to do that?
2: Right. I I mean. So it's how, anyway, a but but so but how do
1: we do it? How do we? How do we? How do we? Mm-hmm. I first step is to acknowledge that we're not very good at it. And to, and to acknowledge our own failure, but how, how do we learn to, to, to do that with students, do that with ourselves?
2: So do that with ourselves first. I, I strongly believe, and I mean, a part of my developmental leave was to do, yeah. to learn autoethnography um, so that, you know, if I'm teaching my critical reflection class, I'm actually honest with myself that I've done the hard work of reflection myself. Yeah. Um, and yes, I can say that you know I do critical reflection annually for my annual reviews, or I do critical reflection when I think deeply about you know that experience of that co-advisor telling me to go home wash dishes. But the truth is, doing critical reflection is hard and it's painful, and we don't want to do it as faculty. And. You know, I did a preliminary study with a number of faculty and staff, and what came out with, with a colleague of mine at Olin, Julian Epstein, and what came out from that is that we can't even, as faculty and staff, we can't even define critical thinking or critical research, yeah. let alone do it. Um, so you asked me about the process. First step is acknowledging that we don't well, know. Anything. I tell
1: you what, why don't we need to take a break? And I, but I want to continue on this this line. This is this is really important. And so why don't let's take a break and then we're going to come back and talk about those steps to deeper reflection. But there's also a sense in which this connects in a larger way to narrative and story that we need to talk about. Sounds great. Do you, Sounds great. Okay, we'll do that in the next segment. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special special guest Anya Zastafakar, and. Uh, from Olin College in the next uh, segment we're going to reflect more deeply on reflection and narrative
0: from the boardroom to you voice america business network do you want greater success in bringing change to your university college department or classroom are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change would you like to boost your own academic business or technical career let david e goldberg of three joy associates help david is a leading speaker author trainer and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen
1: to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or
0: Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's one 472 5790 Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show.
1: And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our third and final segment is uh, sponsored by Big Beacon's upcoming webinar. Join us uh, July 19th at 4 p.m. Eastern for four keys to ineffective educational change or how to botch transformation without really trying. Learn the four mistakes that people in modern change initiatives make and how to overcome them. And learn how you can join Big Beacon's communities of innovators today. Go to bigbeacon.org to sign up or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And I'm just having... A lot of fun here talking to Zhenya Zastavker from Olin College about uh, well, all kinds of things that are messed up about engineering education today. And we were talking about one of the one of the lacunae of of reflection and the need for critical reflection among faculty, among actually among the organizations that faculty live in, and then to encourage students to be more deeply reflective. And I guess one of the things that I used to, and I still say it, about when people ask me, well, what's different about Olin? I say, well, you know, kind of to a person at Olin, the faculty seem deeply reflective about what they're doing. And that's one of their critical uh, advantages over others who are less so. Your
2: thoughts. (laughs) Oh, I think we all can do better. Um, Sure. So um, I have um, myself um, taught two iterations of a course on critical reflection. We called it slightly different. First time it was critical reflective writing. Second time around we taught this class. um, Julian Epstein and myself, we taught this class, and we named it What's Your Story?, yeah. Um, where, and in the second iteration of this critical reflection course, we really wanted to get to the core of the narratives, to the core of the students' stories. Yeah. And what we found, so by far, by absolutely far, these two courses were the most influential courses or one of the most influential courses that I've ever taught. And the reason yeah. for that is because, A, I learned so much from my students, yeah. and B, I learned so much more about how much I don't know.
1: Um I love that you just said that. That the the whole sense of not knowing. It's so important to get to the point of acknowledging not knowing and what you don't know. It's like it's and and that it's okay to not know. Exactly. I, I'm sorry I interrupted you but I just I it's like there're certain things that sort of you yeah, Z- Z- Zanya, you've you've rung about three of my bells here, so you're you're a th- you're like a th- this is you're you're a three bell uh, uh, guest on the show. Anyways, I'm I'm sorry I interrupted you, but uh, if you want to comment on what I just said, it's okay. If you just want to continue from my interruption, that's fine too.
2: I'm right on with you, Dave. Here, um, but you you went actually one step further. You said acknowledging it, and that sounded to me as though that acknowledgement needs to be out loud. So it's one thing for us to kind of acknowledge within our own minds and to say, I don't know, and also then give ourselves permissions not to know. But it's a completely different matter to be courageous enough to come out and say out loud, I don't know. I don't know, and I'm here with you to learn together.
1: Yeah, when when Mark and I do our... our our training, which might be considered sort of critical reflection 101 for faculty training. We usually end the, like about a day and a half into it, we end with Brene Brown's Power of Vulnerability video at, at the end of an exercise on uh, imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's, just so, it's just so important to acknowledge that one of our stories as faculty is that we're supposed to know And to say, nope, I don't need to know. It's okay. In fact, it's essential that I not know. In fact, for me to help another person, I better not know what I think they should do. And if I do, I'm not serving them.
2: Correct. Correct. But to be courageous enough to say that, oh my goodness, how powerful it is to finally come out of one's shelf, come out of the closet and say to the students, I don't know. And I'm more than willing to learn from you. And let's travel on this journey together. Teach me. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Teach me to become yeah. stronger. Teach me yeah. to become more equitable. Teach me to see things that I don't yeah. see. Teach yeah. me about your community. But I'm not, you know, while well, also saying that you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't feel singled out to represent your, your community, but I just want to learn. I just want to sit with you, and I want to see you. Um, you know, like in the movie Avatar, where, yes. where this expression, I see you, That's what I mean. So it's it's that conversation that I'm talking about. So in a reflective practice, you know, the first step is to say, I don't know, I'm on a journey. And this is an eternal journey. Um, And the critical piece of reflective practice is to kind of say, what is the context? What are the critical theories out there? that allow me to understand power structures, that allow me to understand context, that allow me to see social interactions, and how do I understand my positionality, my privileges or not, within those contexts. And then make sense out of that. And then reflexively look back at oneself and say, who am I? What is my selfhood? What, is, what are my values and beliefs that I bring into situation, into a problem-solving um, kind of context? And what do these say? What do these kind of, how do these values and beliefs inform me into who I am and how can I leverage them in my problem-solving process? All of these aspects then become critical pieces of the critical reflective practice that I'm talking about. And it is that learning and that understanding that came through the two iterations of critical reflection course that I've taught um, and also the the, uh, practices that I brought into my physics classroom, mechanics classroom, and into um, advanced design course um, that I'm constantly using. But I'm learning myself, and, um, you know, I took my developmental leave that I'm on right now to learn about myself, to become critically reflective, to learn the tool of autoethnography, to be better able to critically reflect on my own path, on my own learning journey, so that I'm better able to support my students and colleagues. It, it is, and I think I'm quite passionate about this, and I'm quite passionate about saying, I don't know, but I'm willing to be here with you.
1: Well, and and I'm, you know, So you you're taking your your leave to do that, and I, and I. This may be too personal, and if and if it's problematic, tell me so. But I'm curious what you've. You're you're on this journey right now for yourself, and. And I'm just wondering, are there, what lessons have you learned on this kind of reflective piece that you've been on yourself that you feel comfortable sharing with our listeners?
2: Sure. Um, so, um, for, the, uh, for quite a long time, and, and I already shared a few personal pieces that sure. I wasn't able to kind of articulate even a year ago. Yep. Um, but what I have been talking to my students about quite a bit is <clears throat> working, it, it, is kind of growing with them and developing with them their ability to bridge personal and professional. <clears throat> and the reason um, Julian and I started this conversation with our students is because we worked with them on their Grand Challenge Scholars portfolios, or we worked yep. with them on their letters of intent for jobs, or on their letters to graduate schools. And often, um, their letters looked similar. Their portfolios looked similar. Mm-hmm. All of our students take UCD course, user oriented collaborative design. All of our students take, you know, introductory um, design courses, design nature, etc. So the the experiences look very similarly uh, to many of these students, and they start looking identical to one another. Yeah. And so our question was. What's your story? Who are you? What yeah, are hard. your values and beliefs? What is the context? What's driving you yeah. um, to do what you want to do? What are you really interested about? What, what are the privileges or non-privileges that you carry with you that actually inform you? How do we know who you are? I want to see you. Um, and so when I started saying to the students, there are stories started emerging. When I started yeah. working with the students, their narrative started emerging in a yeah. passionate, unique kind of way. And yeah. I thought to myself, "Well, oh, gee, I need to be doing the same. I need to be honest what, enough yeah. with myself. What's my story? And courageous yeah. enough with myself yeah. to do that. And so my first step was actually to take um, a course on autobiography writing mm. um, where I had to sit down and start writing um, my stories. My story of, you know, my co-advisor telling me to go home. My story of coming to the United States and hoping that everybody is going to be smiling genuinely to me. Um, And they didn't. Um, My story of learning English and the first person who was able to check whether I know enough English saying F you and smiling at me. Um, You know, the first story of me um, coming out into a classroom and making... Mistake after mistake after mistake, um, and not knowing how to support students. Those are personal narratives that inform who I am professionally now. Right, Mm -hmm. and when I talk about the story of candy, for example, you know, we as immigrants kind of landed in Vienna on a platform with a candy store. It was six in the morning. The platform was empty, and there was this candy store, and uh, it was closed. And I remember coming to this candy store and looking at the window and seeing all of these wrappers. And, of course, I came, I came from the USSR. We had two types of candy. That is it. But here I saw golden wrappers and, you know, silver wrappers and blue and red, and the candy had different shapes, and they were everywhere, and none of them were accessible to me. And so... I was able to emerge that story as a metaphor to saying, mm. I now emigrated. I had all of these opportunities, but they were closed to me. So what was my lesson? How was I to get into the store? Right? How was I open to open that door of that closed store at 6 o'clock in the morning to look at the candy, to taste the candy, to have interaction with the candy? And what, metaphorically speaking, are all of those candy about? for me, right? How do I come from the country of no future to the country of so many potential futures? And how do I make peace with the fact that, A, I I have choice, and B, I want to make the right choice that is true to me? Mm -hmm. So I now tell this story about the candy as a way of saying, how do we make peace? How do we understand our past? How do we place it in the context how do we make um, equilibrated um, with your values and beliefs? And how do we then plan for the future steps? How do we shift our paradigm? How do we say we come from communistic society into capitalistic society, and we own this. We own this experience. Um, that is my journey right now, like I'm still trying to figure all of this out. But I better understand what I should have done with my students. Last semester, I taught them critical reflection class. Mm. And I certainly am better prepared to teach them next time because I now have the language and skills around it because I practiced it myself. Right? I'm doing the hard work of reflection right now.
1: Such a, I'm so moved by what you just said. and. I, I think I should just let you continue. We only have a few minutes left. We have about one minute left, so I'm going to give you the last word. So, um, our listeners uh, have been listening li- in rapt attention as I have. Uh, what uh, what would you like to share with them in the last minute of the show? Well,
2: listen. So, first of all, I have to say thank you so much for this opportunity to to talk, and also. Um, th- th- this is also th- this interview was for me a way of reflection a way of kind of owning my voice yes um, so thank you very much for this
1: Yes, i knew you owned it support. you really owned it it's beautiful um,
2: um, but also to say that i'm here on this journey with many others and i am truly looking for opportunities to work and collaborate with others who are willing to kind of who are, who are willing to take a risk and ask themselves hard questions and work together on supporting ourselves and also supporting our students in this process of self-discovery. So um, I'm open for contacts. I'm open for um, future research collaborations. I'm open for co-design opportunities to create environments where we can come together to start self reflective processes and also create um, environments for our students to do that safely.
1: Beautiful. And uh, p- people can get a hold of you uh, by going to the Olin website, olin.edu, uh, other, other contact points?
2: Um, yes. So Olin's website is fine. I'm also on developmental leave at Northeastern, so they can reach me there. Or researchgate.net or academia.edu are other two ways of reaching out
1: to me. Beautiful. Thanks for joining us. You've been you so listening much. to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Special thanks to Senja Zastavker from Olin College. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.